Hello, thanks for tuning in to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, your host, and today I'm doing a first. It's been a year since my initial podcast hit the internet, and I'm celebrating by having my first repeat guest. James L. Cambius was one of my first interviews last year for his book, A Darkling Sea, and I've asked him back on the show to talk about his new book, Corsair, and also a bit about his participation in the Hieroglyph Project, which, among other things, produced a collection of short stories intended to inspire innovations in real science. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we talked briefly about Corsair at the end of our first podcast together in anticipation of the book's 2015 release, and you'd given a short plot summary, and uh, now that I've read it, I it proved to be exactly as you said. I guess I, I was waiting to see if there might have been some last-minute changes. Well, by the time I spoke with you, I, I think the book was pretty much set in stone. Um, you know, the, le- the lead time in publishing is such that Last summer, if there were any edits being done, they were at the level of correcting typos or whatever. One of the weird things about being a writer is by the time you're talking about one project, you're already well into the next project. And it's kind of funny, actually, that publishing has traditionally been kind of slow motion, I guess you could say, and... Uh, it still is, despite all the advances in technology. There are some aspects of it which which still move in a rather, at a rather old-fashioned pace. Every aspect of it seems to move at an old-fashioned pace. I don't want to um, sound like I'm complaining because I'm, I move at a fairly old-fashioned pace myself. But every time I'm giving advice to an aspiring writer, I tell them, you know, nothing takes less than six months. You won't get a reply back this season. Right, that holds true for agents and editors. Loyalty payments. There you go. They like to hold on to those for a while, don't they? <laughs> when my books have come out, they've all um, immediately people start asking me, well, how is it doing? And I have to tell them I won't know for another six months. Wow, yeah, you have to wait for them. You don't, There's nothing you can check immediately on the internet, huh? Well, one can always check one's Amazon standings obsessively, but other than that, no, not really. Well, I would just say one advantage of being a self-published author, as I am, is that you you can see on a day-to-day basis how many people have downloaded or bought your book. But uh, that's one that's small compensation to not having a publishing powerhouse behind you like Tor. So there's trade-offs all around. And if you were a, a neurotic sort of person, it would be a disadvantage, I should think. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely try not to look more than once a week because I'd drive myself crazy if I looked all the time. Um, But let me uh, ask you to give a short overview of Corsair for listeners. Well, Corsair is a near-future, hard science fiction, realistic, techno-thriller look at a classic old science fiction trope, Space Pirates. The inspiration was actually for a short story um, back in 2011, John Joseph Adams was guest editing an issue of the small press zine Shimmer, and he decided to do a pirate theme issue. And I happened to find out about this from him, and I decided rather strategically that this was right around the time that the Pirates of the Caribbean films were were very successful, so I figured everybody's going to be doing fantasy pirates, so I'll do science fiction pirates. And so I started thinking hard about how would you actually do space piracy. And 
The trouble is, it doesn't work if you bring the pirates with you. It makes a lot more sense to leave the pirates safely on the ground and send out the pirate ship on its own, which is basically what the story is about. It's about uh, the, the short story was about this ace space pirate, David Schwartz, aka Captain Black, the space pirate, and his attempt to hijack a helium payload on its way from the moon to Earth, and his nemesis, Captain Elizabeth Santiago of the uh, Air Force Space Command. So I sold the short story to Shimmer, and it ran, and um, my agent suggested that it might be suitable to expand into a novel, so I went back and took a look at it, and I found that he was right, that I could make use of some tricks of orbital mechanics to expand the plot and uh, get David involved in much bigger trouble than, than he was in the original story. And I don't know if I want to spoil the uh, the rest of the novel, but uh, he gets uh, tempted to do one last uh, helium heist and discovers that he's in involved in something much bigger. And this represented a change for you from your initial, your first book, A Darkling Sea, very different uh, setting. A Darkling Sea was about an alien species on an alien planet, a very cold, water-covered planet. And, you know, you require, it would require you to create a very different, complex culture. I wonder what challenges you encountered in writing this very different book, which is set, as you say, in the near future. And it's set on Earth. And in fact, a lot of it takes place. I mean, some of the most compelling uh, nail-biting scenes are, are the pirate action itself, which takes place in space, but also back on Earth in hotel rooms or in uh, luxury condos, um, not exactly where you'd anticipate uh, them to take place. But that's because it's happening, as you say, via computer and keyboard. Actually, the most difficult thing about writing a near-future hard SF thriller is staying ahead of contemporary technology. You know, I, I had to consciously insert bits of futuristic technology just so that the story didn't seem like it was taking place right now. There's a a bit where one of the characters is going to a meeting in his uh, self-driving car, and I put that in partly just to remind the reader that this is not 2015, this is 2030, because it is very difficult. Ironically, it's sometimes easier to extrapolate far future technology than it is to extrapolate tomorrow's technology, if only because there'll be people there tomorrow to tell you what you got wrong. Right. And what about the idea of uh, the helium mining? Were you just looking for something valuable for them to to hijack? Or is that something you can kind of map out a trajectory for for that the development of that kind of industry? I'm not the first person to, to posit helium mining on the moon. Um, helium-3 is a real isotope of helium. It has a real application in fusion power production, and it's rare on Earth. Um, Helium is rare on Earth, and helium-3 makes up a tiny percentage of the rare helium on Earth, so extracting helium-3 would be be an expensive process. But, you know, it would be worth, my back-of-the-envelope calculation was something like a billion dollars a ton. One of the sources of helium-3 is the solar wind, the sun produces it, and it, atoms of it are blown outward with the solar wind and thus lodge on in the, in the regolith, the crust of airless bodies throughout the solar system. The moon is the closest airless body to Earth, and so that makes a good place to, to mine for it. 
and basically mining for it would consist of scooping up lots and lots of lunar surface dust and toasting it lightly to to vaporize to get the helium extracted and then just dumping it again. I am told by people who know more about this than I do that it probably would be more cost effective to just make helium three on Earth using uh, nuclear fission power reactors that basically you, you would essentially irradiate the more common helium two isotope. But um, I did a little hand wave in the story about how uh, you know the people doing the lunar mining operations say they can do it cheaper than people producing it on Earth and. That's all the hand waving I needed to do. And and what what is it used for then? It's used for fusion, the helium three. Right. Yes. One of the one of the fusion, nuclear fusion reactions is basically, and I'm winging this from memory, but I believe it's combining deuterium with helium three, and you get energy, obviously. Are you a long-standing fan of pirate stories and pirate literature? Well, surprisingly, yes. I um, until I started writing this book, I hadn't realized how much of my childhood reading was sea stories. But when I went back and looked at a lot of my old books, I realized I I really do have a lot of of three-masted sailing ships on my bookshelf, which is funny because I've never been much of a sailor myself. I just find it an interesting subject. As to pirates, of course, I grew up in Louisiana, which means one of the local heroes that we learned about in history class was our local pirate, Jean Lafitte, hero of the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812. So, um, you know, I guess I'm predisposed to be uh, to be pro-pirate. Is, is there a predictive ingredient here as well that you are also seeing in the future like this is this is a realistic way that crimes may actually take place it's sort of like drones of outer space where the machines will do the battle while the people operating the machines are are in some bunker or in a condo back on earth i absolutely expect that at some point space piracy or space hacking whatever they decide to call it will be a criminal enterprise that's there's Space hardware is just too valuable. One of the more um, interesting possibilities for, for space piracy would be taking over the use of satellites rather than you know, physically stealing them, but you know, hijacking their operation for your own purposes. I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen more of that already. It does seem like an extension of what you'd imagine is possible now. I mean, in terms of being able to steal money out of people's bank accounts just digitally. I mean, you don't actually have to pull out a gun and go to a bank. If you know the right passwords or, you know, identity theft, you can steal money that way without ever actually putting your hands on cash. So it does, it makes sense, I, I guess, as our technology extends into space that the same potential for theft would apply. Well, interestingly, the big use would be for the information that satellites produce. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of reconnaissance and and uh, guidance satellites. I would imagine that for any kind of insurgent group, being able to bollocks the GPS uh, system, for example, would be of tremendous use to them. I assume that there are ways that the system is protected against it, but I don't know what they are, and I'm sure the people who do wouldn't be willing to tell me. But... Um, I'm sure that there's also probably a number of people working on ways to spoof or deceive it. 
Was it a challenge for you to try to figure out who the enemy should be in this? I mean, it's the near future. So my sense is that the bad guys in this have sort of Middle Eastern-y, Russian-y names like, you know, Vlad and Colonel Gavami and Haftan. But you never, unless I missed it, I don't think you ever actually identify their nationalities and who they're working for. And I just wondered, you know, if that posed a challenge in terms of not wanting to come down on in, on one part of the world or another, or you know, just how you how you grapple with that. Well, yes, I was being artfully cagey about not telling the reader exactly who the bad guys were, partly because nothing dates faster than a topical thriller. You know, if if this year we're being wary of the Chinese, next year we'll be paranoid about the Russians. The year after that, we'll be worried about the Iranians. If you look back at spy thrillers from the 1960s, for example, it's sometimes hilarious almost how paranoid they were about China at a time when China was barely struggling out of being a what we would call a third world country and was racked with internal turmoil, you know, the Mao's cultural revolution or whatever, and was in no position to do to threaten anybody beyond their own borders. Uh, but because they were mysterious, they were sort of an object of much more paranoia than the Russians, who were much more of an active threat to to Western nations at the time, but seemed more familiar and thus less less perilous and less exotic, I guess. Well, I guess, yeah, being dated, that's one of the dangers of, of I suppose, any kind of writing, but particularly science fiction writing. Yes, and again, it's it's harder to be uh, to do near future stuff accurately than it is to do far future stuff. If I want to predict that in a century India will be the world's dominant economic and military power, well, by the time anybody can check whether I'm right or not, I'll probably be dead. But if I'm predicting that ten years from now India will be a, a major player, then I have to really hope that people in charge in India don't screw things up. Right, exactly. I know you're a game designer, and I just wondered if that helped you think through some of the plotting or at least some of the um, interface that the pirates use to do their work. I did get to vicariously design a pirate computer game, which I would love to play, you know, basically a, a, a sort of a massive multiplayer online pirate game. Where you're with a with a 3D virtual reality interface, you know that sounds pretty damn cool. But um, otherwise, um, actually, I don't know if I mentioned this during our previous interview, but I actually had to unlearn a lot of um, the things that go into creating role playing game adventures in order to write better fiction. Because role playing games tend to be stories of incremental success. You you defeat a monster, and then you defeat a bigger monster, and your success at each stage in a in a fairly plotty kind of role playing game like say Call of Cthulhu you know you gain the information which then leads you to the next encounter so that a story like that would be a series of successes whereas to make more i, I had to basically teach myself that to make for more interesting fiction uh, it actually has to be a series of interesting failures things have to get worse for the hero until the end rather than better that can happen in games too, right? I mean, you can you can lose and then you win and then you lose. Yes, except that role playing game players hate to lose. <laughs> they will basically just keep keep coming at it until they win. Moreover, in in role playing games, there's also generally the the 
continual improvement of the characters. As you play, you gain resources, you gain experience, which improves your character, and so on. So in most role-playing games, the, the characters at the end of the book are more powerful than the characters at the beginning of the book. Whereas in fiction, often there's more of a process of stripping things away from the hero until he has to rely just on his own internal resources. Hmm. As indeed I do with David. In a way, you could just do what you do in a game, but just go in the opposite direction. I guess, yes, do it backwards. Well, let's move on and talk about the Hieroglyph Project. I interviewed, as you know, one of the editors of the book uh, associated with the project, Catherine Kramer, last fall, uh, shortly after uh, the book. I mean, I know there's the Hieroglyph Project, and part of that project was the was a book, so it's not the whole it's not the whole concept. But um, the book was what I was interested in for the podcast, and you wrote one of the stories in the book. But recently, you wrote um, some blog posts saying that you felt like the project had failed in its mission and hadn't created any hieroglyphs. So for listeners to really understand you know, what that's about, I wondered if you could explain what the concept of hieroglyph as it's used in the hieroglyph project means and why you feel the project failed. Well, as I'm sure Catherine mentioned in, in your interview with her, the the name hieroglyph comes from the writer Neil Stevenson, who wrote an essay back in, I believe it was 2011, called Innovation Starvation, which was a, a plea for why the contemporary United States and, by extension, Western industrial society doesn't undertake big, ambitious technological projects the way that it was doing when Stevenson was young, because he's a few years older than I am. So he was around for the high points of the space age. He could probably remember the construction of much of the interstate highway system. He could remember uh, the original World Trade Center towers going up in half the time it took to build a single tower to replace them. You know, he lived in a time of big projects being undertaken and successfully completed, whereas now increasingly, at least to a lot of people, it feels that that's no longer possible, that we're, we're more interested in developing cool apps for our cell phones than in building something big. And um, he wrote this essay, and um, one of the things he fingered as the, the culprit was that science fiction writers were no longer providing technologists with what he called hieroglyphs, which is to say these sort of consensual shared visions of what the future was going to be. If you read any randomly picked issue of, say, astounding as science fiction from, oh, we'll say 1965 or whatever, most of the stories in it would have felt like they took place in the same universe. There was a, a sort of a broadly accepted consensus in the science fiction world about how the future was going to progress. First, there would be exploration in the solar system, colonies on Mars, perhaps colonies on Venus. At some point, we would lick the problem of interstellar travel. There would be humanity would expand out to the stars. There would probably be periods when colonies would be rebelling against the home planet, but eventually they would probably reform some sort of human federation or human empire. If there were contacts with aliens, there might be wars with them or there might be peaceful coexistence but all of the the sort of classic science fiction 
very much of it fit into this sort of shared future. Not explicitly shared. The, the proper names were different. The chronologies were different. But they all shared a lot of the same vision of what we were likely to do. And Stevenson's idea was that this served as what he called hieroglyphs, images and icons that would inspire technologists. So that if you said, I'm working on a propulsion system to take people to Mars, nobody would have to ask you, well, why do you want to go there? The the idea that humanity was going to go to Mars was baked in. Everybody assumed it. It was used in advertisements. There was bound to be a a Mars voyage pavilion at a World's Fair or whatever. It was definitely part of sort of shared popular culture consciousness. And with that kind of space travel came robots and ray guns and those sorts of things as well. That was all part of the the vocabulary that everyone could universally imagine the future and some kind of teletransportation. I mean, I'm just sort of filling in some of the some of the details that came with that image of our future in space. Exactly. My rule of thumb is if you can show it in a mass market motion picture and not have to have one of the characters explain it to one of the other characters so the audience knows what it does, then it's a hieroglyph. You don't have to explain to the the audience how the rocket works. You get in the rocket and you go. You don't have to explain how the force feels. The characters just touch an invisible barrier and there's a a sound effect and the audience knows what what that means. So is one of the keys to being a hieroglyph that it's echoed throughout many writers and many storytellers' visions and it's not just a one-off, like one person couldn't come up with some spectacular idea that, you know, would allow someone to, I don't know, turn turn green or change color. And if no one else mirrors that in their book, then it's not really a hieroglyph because it just, it just kind of disappears. I think so. I, I think certainly it has to be something, uh, at least I get my take is that it has to be something that becomes part of the shared mental landscape. Although, of course, obviously a lot of these things did you know, if you're a scholar of the history of science fiction, you can trace them back to where they were first introduced. But um, ultimately, that's not as important as the fact that it becomes part of the shared landscape. So anyway, Stevenson's idea was that writers had stopped creating new hieroglyphs, and the old ones had gotten a little tired out, and that consequently, we were just sort of uh, rearranging our old furniture and and not really coming up with new things that would inspire new generation of technologists to make real. Uh, so he challenged writers to, to go out and do this. And um, the president of Arizona State University thought this was such a swell idea. He um, invited Stevenson to work with their Center for uh, Science and the Imagination, which uh, was one of the public was one of the sponsors of the uh, whole hieroglyph project, and um, Ed Finn, the director of the center, is co-author, co-editor of the uh, the anthology. You had seminars and workshops, and also the book came out uh, as a result. And, and the ambition was to create new hieroglyphs, like to to seed those ideas in the popular imagination and in the scientific imagination, new ideas. Right, yes, that was the idea of ambitious new technological ideas which would inspire people to solve contemporary problems. And I, that last clause, I think, is why I think it failed. 
to create any new hieroglyphs because I think that by aiming the writers at specific real-world problems, they limited us because, not consciously, obviously, but none of the iconic science fiction images or concepts or tropes, I don't think any of them came out of a conscious attempt to solve a real-world problem. And I think that's that's the problem that that by aim, by aiming us at at actual uh, uh, things in the world around us, the result was a collection of stories that they're very good stories, but most of them feel quite contemporary. There's there's stories about uh, surveillance. There's stories about immigration. There's stories about my own stories about rapid prototyping and brain drain. And these were all things that you could open a newspaper in 2012 and see news articles about. So in your in your blog post you say that that it's really rare actually for concepts in a story to make inventors think that could work. Like more often you say writers are technologists and they can introduce readers to things that haven't made it into the po- into popular science periodicals yet, uh, but that already exists. But more rarely do they actually inspire inventors. And most of their actual predictions are are accidental. Yes, exactly. Um, when the, even when they do inspire inventors, it's usually as a result of something that was invented for story purposes. After all, if you if you have an invention, you go to the patent office. You you patent it. You invent it. You don't write a story about it. If you're that good, and and writers usually aren't that good. They're mostly writers, which means they're writing about stuff and making stuff up and making stuff up for story purposes. But sometimes those concepts turn out to be realizable or inspire somebody to uh, to create something similar. I know you say the taser is one such example, actually, of something that appeared first in literature. That's one of the few where there seems to be a direct link between something described in a story and something that somebody built, where the inventor actually saw the thing in the story and decided to build something like it. Uh, usually it's more likely that somebody says something, somebody referenced, somebody makes something up for a story and somebody else without necessarily having read the story invents something that is similar. And then later on the, the writer can, can congratulate themselves for having predicted it. Right. That's what you say. The, the science fiction writers are famous for shooting the barn and then painting a bullseye around it later. Right, yeah, that was the the title of my essay, which um, I think is important because it means that we forget about all of the pieces of standard science fiction furniture that aren't coming true and that will never come true. (laughs) Psychic powers are are my favorite example. That was absolutely a a fixture of science fiction. You still see stories today about psionic powers, and that's just a sciencey name for magic, Um, you know, They've been studied and studied and studied, and and no properly done scientific study of psionic powers has revealed anything that can't be explained as just chance. But you say warp drive will never come true. So, so what does that mean for so much of um, so much of science science fiction literature uh, invested in our imaginations and and the hieroglyphs all around uh, space travel? If we if we can only move at a sub-warp uh, pace. It does have tremendous implications. Um, it means that interstellar travel 
now, you know, I will be happy to be proved wrong about this, but, and indeed for some of my own fiction, I've posited that an easy way of interstellar travel will be discovered. But I, as, a per, as a matter of personal belief, I don't think it's likely at all. Um, it means that our future is essentially going to be within this solar system. And that's something that we need to sort of, I think, adjust our minds to, is that uh, there are strange new worlds out there, but there are things you can see through a telescope from your backyard. Unless we find a wormhole somewhere, unless you're ruling that out too. Well, okay, there's an example. Wormholes are a, a hieroglyph. They, no one has ever observed one. No one ever has. It's, it's a, it's a this-could-happen uh, uh, physics uh, thought experiment. It's you know, not, an, not an actual phenomenon that people have studied. It's more of a you know, physicist who, in many cases, are science fiction fans dreaming up ways to uh, get around the limits of, of Einsteinian relativity. But even their, their uh, models require things like negative mass, which is um, not something that we've actually been able to create in the real world again. I thought it was interesting that you said it's a dirty little secret that science fiction is, quote, fundamentally a branch of literature. And I wonder if you could explain, I suppose you're referring to or, you know, saying that science fiction writers themselves don't like to think of their work as, as literature as much as it is something predictive or, you know, something rooted in science. But maybe you could explain that a little further. Partly, I think, for historical reasons, science fiction writers and fans have had a tremendous chip on their collective shoulders about our relationship with the mainstream of literature. Because, of course, for uh, decades, right up until the 1960s or 70s, science fiction was barely above pornography in terms of its literary acceptability. Uh, in fact, arguably, perhaps even below it. Um, partly because the what John M. Ford called the rules of engagement in science fiction were so different from those in what we'll call literary fiction. You know, the, the goals of the writers were different. In a, science fi- a science fiction writer was trying to present a cool idea and, and possibly an adventure based on it. And those were not goals that those were goals that literature during the same period was gradually abandoning. Um, So that science fiction to a literary practitioner seemed laughably out of date in its, in its prose and in its, its storytelling methods. And meanwhile, the science fiction writers, you know, there's, there's inevitably this, this chorus of derision whenever a non science fiction writer goes slumming and writes their one permitted science fiction-y story and usually winds up reinventing the wheel laboriously. You know, wouldn't it be fascinating if I could write a story about people living on the moon, um, you know, <laughs> ignoring the fact that there's vast amounts of SF that's already done that. And so science fiction and literatures have spent many, many decades talking past each other. And this has created very much of a sort of defiant outsiderdom attitude in the science fiction community with a strong dose of sour grapes so that writers, I think, felt that that 
the, them literature guys wouldn't understand us anyway. Um, that we're doing something different. Uh, I don't remember which writer it was, but at one point I do remember reading an essay by one science fiction writer who was a- attempting to maintain that all fiction was a subset of fantastic literature. That you know, that fantasy and science fiction were the were the set of which realistic fiction was the subset, rather than the other way around. And you know, this does not mirror how how other people think of it and how the publishing world thinks of it. And so I think that level of, of sort of almost willful uh, self-deception is uh, you know, indicates that kind of level of, of as I say, defiance. Um, so that science fiction writers try to, I think, like to believe that we're doing something that's special and different. That we're writing stories that are about about things them literature guys don't don't necessarily understand, um, and of course they would I'm sure say the same about us. But you say fundamentally it is a branch of literature, and um, I would I would hope that would also mean that it should be held to the same standards as literature. That you can't just tell you know write about some new invention or vision of the future, but you need to tell it in a in a way that shows craftsmanship, you know, wordsmithing and character development and all the other rules of good storytelling. Oh, absolutely. And that has been an ongoing process within science fiction and science fiction more so than fantasy because fantasy kind of had a head start. Fantasy was always a lot more literarily respectable for some reason. But yes, science fiction has been, while loudly claiming that it doesn't care about them literary values, has been gradually raising the bar of its literary quality for uh, several decades now. I mean, this sort of began with the famous conflict between the old guard and the new wave in the late 60s and early 70s. And you can see it at the root of some of the teapot tempests going on in the field right now about what should be the, what should be the, the, the signs of excellence in science fiction. Should we judge things as, as science fiction or should we judge things as literature? And, you know, yes, I, I perfectly, I've, have said many times in the past that I don't see why we can't do both. Well, and you end your assessment of science fiction on a positive note. I mean, after shooting down warp drive and anti-gravity and uh, psychic abilities, you do ultimately say that science fiction does, uh, it, it, it may not necessarily be consciously inventing hieroglyphs. You know, if it does so, it does it accidentally, you seem to be saying. But you do say it can serve to inspire people to become scientists and to be excited about science and excited about invention. And maybe I'm kind of maligning what, you, what, what your ultimate point is, so maybe, maybe you could explain it. No, that's precisely it, yes. I think that's the real place where science fiction can shine, not by showing us specific targets to aim at, but more by providing a literature for people who are interested in scientific discovery and people who think like scientists and technologists. The rise of of nerd chic over the past uh, 20 or so years has been basically a case of popular culture adopting a lot of science fictionisms as the technologists have gone from being people who worked for other people at jobs that other people thought were boring to the the titans of, of our economy. You know, when when a nerdy guy with glasses who likes to fool with computers is named Bill Gates and is the richest man in America, then 
all of a sudden, nerdy guys who like to fool with computers are a lot cooler <laughs> than they used to be. And the things that they like to read are suddenly a lot cooler. And I think that science fiction can, can encourage future, future Jobses and Gateses and Elon Musks and all the others by giving them fiction that speaks to them, that hears stories about people who think like you. And what are you working on now? Like, what's, what's next in, the, in your writing pipeline? The novel I'm working on now is a, um, a coming-of-age story. It's called, the working title is Arcad's World, and it's about a boy who is the only human on an exotic planet inhabited by a variety of other alien species. And uh, then some other humans arrive, and he has to help them do what they've come to that planet to do and in the process try to figure out what his role among humans is going to be wow so is that that sort of like a a zoo uh, of sorts or i'm just guessing you don't have to tell me well it's it's a planet that has been settled it's a planet that has been colonized by various species at different points in its history so it's got enclaves of all different uh, aliens and they get along sometimes and and some of them are in conflict but it's very much a a a world with lots of you know bizarre little cultures and 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 subgroups and uh he's the only human who's native there i see so it's a bit of a return to some of the maybe some of the ideas in a darkling sea creating a new a whole new planet and and new cultures and alien species oh yes i i love creating aliens and i had i've come up with some that i really like for this one it's also sort of my attempt to tackle another science fiction standby of the the planetary romance story, where it's or they're sometimes called sword and planet stories, where instead of voyaging from world to world, the characters are traveling through a landscape, an alien landscape, encountering various perils and puzzles along the way. Well, it sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for chatting with me tonight, James. I really, I really enjoyed catching up with you about your newest contribution to science fiction literature, Course Air. Well, I hope everyone enjoys it. I'm sure they will. I have been talking with James L. Cambius, whose second book, Corsair, is available at fine stores everywhere, just as his first book, A Darkling Sea, is as well. Uh, I encourage you to check out my interviews with other authors on the New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy website, which is www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com. And uh, please subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcasting sites you use. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, and we tweet at New Books Sci-Fi. I tweet uh, personally at Rob Wolf Books, and feel free to follow me. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau, theme music by Michael Aaron. The editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. My next podcast will be with Jane Linskold, author of Artemis Invaded. So stay tuned, and bye for now.